Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Today, I want to discuss reading and uh, a process that I like to advise in terms of thinking differently about reading from a writer's perspective. I've got with me a pile of books here. I'm just going to kind of go through a, a pile of my upcoming reading. So a little pile I've got here of stuff that I'm going to read. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the books that I have read recently. Uh, the reason I think this is worth doing is because I want to just kind of get into the subject or the headspace of like how a writer is maybe thinking a little differently about reading compared to the average reader. One book I just started reading uh, recently is uh, by Francine Prose, Reading Like a Writer, it's called, A Guide for People Who Love Books and Those Who Want to Write Them. Now, I haven't finished this book. Uh, I haven't really gotten that far into it yet, to be honest, um, which is why I'm talking about it. I'm talking about the book I'm reading right now. Uh, the first thing I just want to note, uh, which is something I generally advise if you are going to be a focused reader, is to pick one book and read one book at a time. Now, I don't ex solely completely do that, but I try as much as possible to have like one book I'm reading and I'm just sort of reading that book till I'm done or until I am sick of it and decide to finish, quit reading it and never finish reading it. Um, a lot of times people talk to me about reading, they report that they you know, feel like they have to finish books. I really encourage you to drop the idea that you have to finish every book you start. It's a terrible habit to get into. Uh, there are so many books out there. Uh, and you, even if you read voraciously, you're, you're not going to even read the smallest fraction of a fraction of them. You don't need to be wasting time on books that you don't love or that aren't rewarding you in some other way. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish this book, but I am reading it right now. Uh, I was kind of unimpressed with the first page. Uh, the book opens with something that I hate. Can creative writing be taught? This is the first line, this is the question. Can creative writing be taught? Almost every creative writing textbook I see these days seems to have, at some point in it, if not at the very start, like this, uh, some sort of raising of the question of, can you teach a writer to become a writer? Can you teach creative writing? And they always conclude, no, not really. On some level, you can't. But, you know, here's some tips anyway. <laughs> you know, it's that's kind of reductionist, what I'm saying, but... I think there is this, again, this idea that I like to talk about a lot, just because I see it out there so much, this idea that somehow writing has a mystical quality and it is a mysterious thing and you have to have some talent, you know, you can't just develop your talent and all these things. Uh, it's absolute garbage. Uh, what people think is, mo is talent uh, often, not always, but often is simply a uh, person who's read a lot. You know, and they've absorbed a lot of what they read. Uh, they were paying attention. They were reading closely. Uh, even just if they weren't attempting to do so, you know, they were paying just a level of attention that went a little bit above and beyond uh, the level of attention another person paid. Uh, and they kind of absorbed a bit more of the lessons of those books, whether they were direct lessons, like the book was trying to teach you something, or whether they were indirect lessons, like you were just learning something by virtue of... Uh, 
being exposed to it. Uh, and so this is why um, a story I like to tell along those lines is um, my daughter, uh, Jessie, when she was in grade five or six, she had to do a book report. So she did a book report on Odd and the Frost Giants by Neil Gaiman, which was a book that I had given her at the time. I'd actually you know, met Gaiman briefly and had him sign the book and everything. And uh, I brought the, gave her the book. She loved this book. Um, she read it like two or three times. And she ended up doing this book report on it. So uh, at one point, I'm looking at her book report. And I'm like editing it for her, basically. She asked me to do that. And she's got a semicolon right in the middle of a sentence there. You know, it's a big semicolon. And I look at it, and I am kind of startled because uh, I'd never seen her use a semicolon before. But also, she had used it correctly. And, you know, I'm sitting there trying to teach university classes in, you know, creative writing or academic writing I was teaching a lot of the time. So the point is I'm teaching university students who should know how to use a semicolon. They can't use semicolons to save their life. Even the very good students, you know, or otherwise strong writers can't use semicolons. And, you know, Jessie's a smart kid, but she's not a savant, you know. There's, there's no, and she hadn't been taught to use semicolons because I asked her about it. I'm like... I don't think, I'm like, have they taught you how to use semicolons yet? She's like, no. Uh, kind of like started grilling her about how did you know how to use the semicolon? And she kind of got a little upset because she thought, uh, initially at least, she thought I was, you know, criticizing her use of the semicolon and that she had done it wrong. So I, as soon as I kind of realized that was what she was thinking, I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you've done it right. I'm just kind of confused as to, like, how you would have done it right because, uh, you know, where did you learn it? I never taught you that. Um, school didn't teach her that. And I, like, I'm kind of questioning her about like when to use semicolons and things. She has no idea. No idea what the rules are. No idea why. No idea why she even did it. Except that it just seemed like there should be a semicolon there, so she put one there. Didn't even think about it. Can't articulate the reasons, you know, none of that stuff. Uh, probably a lot of you have had a similar sort of experience. You just have sort of done something without thinking about it, uh, and you've done it right. And sometimes you catch yourself and kind of wonder, you start second-guessing yourself. Um, the reason that she'd done it right, of course, is because she read books. You know, she just had read books. She'd seen it before. She didn't know the rules. She didn't know, uh, you know, she picked it up the way kids pick up language. They just have, are exposed to it, you know, and they uh, just start to realize, you know, kind of unconsciously what the structures of them are. And of course, later on, you know, she unlearned it. You know, in high school, they they taught her the wrong way somehow, and she started doing it wrong like everybody else. Um, you know, now she kind of, you know, I corrected her on that, and she does a good job with semicolons now. She's an excellent writer. But the point is, um, you know, you you pick up literally more reading books passively than you do actively uh, being taught things in school. In fact, often in school they're teaching you the wrong things. Uh, whereas if you just picked up a book, even a book that wasn't on semicolon use, but a book that just was had semicolons in it, you, know, you would learn things like that. You learn things passively by reading and reading a lot. Now, if you read a lot, uh, of course, you learn much, much more. And the more you read, you know, the more you're going to kind of get out of it as long as you're still reading with attention. You know, you don't want to be doing speed reading or anything where you're not really comprehending and paying close attention to things. Um, but you do want to be, you know, doing a lot of reading uh, at a kind of very attentive level. And it helps, I think, also if you kind of have 
instead of just passively sort of reading, you have an active approach uh, to you know selecting the text that you're going to read. You know, what are you going to select? You have an intentional way of approaching uh, those texts, and then you take some time for reflection on the text. Um, I say text because I got trained to do that, but I, so I want to mostly say books in the rest of this podcast because I'm going to talk about books primarily. Um, but when I do mention books, I really mean reading anything, uh, you know, whether you're reading a website article or a you know comic book or a uh, longer like anthology or you know whatever it is that you happen to be reading. Uh, although I do honestly think you should focus primarily on reading books. Uh, books are, you know, just uh, of all the different uh, venues. Uh, where you can just kind of get uh, dense levels of information. Books, I think, are still the densest, uh, most you know, information-packed thing you can find. And really, um, if you just look at the economics of it, uh, probably the best actual you know uh, purchasing power, uh, you know, value that you can get. Uh, people often complain about how much books cost, but you know what's how little books cost relative to the value of their content uh, is, you know, stunning. Just absolutely stunning how cheap a book is when you consider uh, how much time it takes to read one and how much you get out of it if you're paying attention. So uh, I'm going to talk a bit about that selection process of, you know, how I pick books to read, how I might advise, you know, you start thinking about picking books to read. Not that I'm doing it the right way exactly, but I think just kind of knowing somebody else's process uh, is going to help you refine your own process. I'm going to talk a bit about how I read, like how I sort of approach reading because I'm a writer and because I have this different intention than, say, the average layperson might have. Uh, and I'm going to talk a bit about the reflective process that I use, you know, how I kind of, what I do with these books after I've read them. Uh, and again, my process may not be the process for you, but you should have some sort of process. You could do worse than, you know, starting with um, somebody else's, you know, just just copy. If you don't have a process, you know, maybe copy mine for a little bit, see how it works for you, uh, then start, you know, adding or deleting things depending on what uh, works for you or works best for you uh, and your goals and what you're trying to get out of, you know, reading. Um, so I wanted to get into just like why you should read before we go into all this stuff. It may seem like a stupid question to ask, like, why should you read? I mean, you're a person listening to podcasts and writing. Obviously, you are going to be reading things you're going to be interested in reading. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, there are a lot of people that I meet. Uh, often it's a myth that emerging writers latch on to. But I've, you know, talked to some very um, established people who should know much better uh, that, uh, that still have this sort of weird idea, which you might have heard. Uh, that maybe you don't want to read something or read in some area because you don't want to be influenced. Uh, you know, the idea often you'll see that, well, you know, this person writes science fiction, but they don't read a lot of science fiction because they don't want to be influenced uh, by other writers. Or they don't want to read, you know, while they're working on a project because they don't want to be influenced, you know, by another writer's uh, style, say, while they're working on a project. Uh, I'm sure you've heard some variation of that. You may have even thought of some variation of that yourself. Um, I just want to begin with the uh, bold proclamation that that is the absolutely wrong idea. 
there's nothing about that idea that is correct in any meaningful way except uh, the bare sort of sense that yes when you do read other people you will absorb influence um, that is why you need to read other people and read a lot of things you want to be influenced let me just say that one more time because this is a real misconception that I see all the time uh, and I've talked to many you know writers who agree with me on this I'm not just a lone wolf out here or anything um, you know this isn't my brainchild uh, it is a thing though that I think uh, especially if you aren't as established or you haven't been doing it as long you won't necessarily know uh, this paradoxical thing is true uh, but the more you read the more you're going to get influenced that influence is valuable uh, you want to be influenced if you don't read you won't be original you will be the least original person because you will be inventing things that people have been doing for the last hundred years you know you'll think you're so smart <laughs> you know and so original and you'll think oh you know i don't have this influence so i'm pure and uncorrupted no uh, if you don't have the influence, uh, then you cannot know uh, how derivative you are being. Uh, and you will just be a derivative. You, know, you just don't get good ideas in a vacuum. You get ideas from outside. You, know, you read a lot of things. Uh, you read a lot in a field. You know, and you know, if you want to write science fiction, you go out, you read all the science fiction you can get your hands on. You read the diversity of it. If you want to write a time travel story, you go find every time travel story you can possibly find. You go read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. You go read a bunch of other uh, you know, time travel stories. Uh, the Chronic Argonauts by H.G. Wells is another good one. You go watch the Terminator movies. You, know, you go find everything that has to do with time travel that you can find. Uh, whether it's hard science that actually has some sort of vaguely plausible scenario or totally ridiculous, you know, dumb paradoxes. Infinitum by G.M.B. Kimichi is a great uh, example of a book that doesn't have any real hard science in it in terms of his time travel, but is doing a really kind of interesting thing around the time travel trope. Um, you got to find that stuff because if you don't know what is out there, you will copy it. Like, that's the weird paradox. If you don't know about it, you will copy it. People think the opposite is true. They think, well, if I know, I'll copy it. No. <laughs> if you don't know, you'll paradoxically copy it uh, because you just will think you're being original. You'll think you have all these great new ideas. Really, you have the deadest you know, rat of an idea that people in the genre have been driving over for the last 80 years. Uh, that's just how it goes. And you need to have that influence a lot of what people take or understand as originality and again a lot of what people think is talent uh, is really the ability to synthesize influences uh, and absorb them and kind of mix them up and jumble them in an interesting mix in an interesting way you want to think of writing in a sense as a recipe you're going out there you're pulling all these influences together you're putting them in your pot and you got to get the right ratio uh, in order to get the taste you want but you can't just you know be boiling water uh, and telling people it's stew like it isn't going to work people are you'll think you know this it'll be like in rest of development where she makes f hot ham water you know she gets this um 
pork kind of like limply puts it in some warm water and calls it hot ham water. You don't want to be feeding people hot ham water thinking that you're, you know, you've just discovered something. They're going to puke their guts out, you know, and go across the street and find themselves some stew uh, or some soup or whatever, you know. So uh, just my little screed on, uh, you know, please read. Uh, I Please don't fall into the trap of thinking you'll be somehow more original and less influenced if you aren't reading. Uh, yes, you'll be less influenced. No, you won't be more original. You know, you need to get the influences to become original, to develop your own voice. You need to be jostling amongst a chorus of other voices and finding your place. You need to figure out where is that gap, you know, where is that space inside the choir where I can put my voice and I can, you know, join this uh, discourse, you know, join into this chorus, uh, but in a way that is, you know, distinctive so that some my, when my mom's in the audience she can hear me uh, singing even though my course is my voice is kind of blending in with these other voices um, you know that's the sort of way you want to think about writing you're joining a field you're joining a discussion um, and you're going to kind of try to get your place inside of that uh, you know the alternative is you're standing outside the church um, singing badly uh, on a soapbox wondering why no one's throwing money into your hat thinking you're super smart now let's just kind of walk through some of the reading that i'm about to do planning to do am doing uh, have done uh, again i don't want to suggest this is exactly how you should do things but i want to give some examples of you know how i'm doing things uh, because i think whatever you end up doing as a practice, uh, you want to have a logic to it. You want to have, you know, this sort of approach, if not exactly like what I'm doing, uh, similar in the sense of like having, again, a selection process, some intention behind it, and a, and a reflection process. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I've recently read and are about to read. So I talked about reading like a writer by Fans and Prose. The reason I'm reading that book right now is because um, it, I just was thinking about doing this podcast. I had done the foundations uh, for creative practice episode to open this podcast uh, launch. And I felt afterwards when listening back to the episodes, you know what I should have talked about was reading. Um, but I don't want to make that episode even longer. So I thought, well, I'll do a separate episode in reading. I remembered I had this book lying around that I hadn't read yet. Started picking it up, started reading it. Uh, so that's the sort of thing I'm reading right now. Uh, what I'm going to read next after that, um, although I have kind of started reading it a little bit, I couldn't help myself, is The Flame by Leonard Cohen. So this is Poems and Selections from Notebooks. Uh, so this book's coming out in October, I think. Uh, I've got an advanced copy of it. Um, I'm not allowed to talk about it until it is out, so I can't say too much about it other than, you know, of course I'm interested in it because it's Leonard Cohen. Um, you know, Cohen has been fairly spotty with his literary work in the last um, decade at least uh, but he still does some really excellent work from time to time and of course I'm really interested in this book because in just to you know some poems uh, which you know I'm sure there'll be some interesting poems in there uh, but he's apparently he's got selections from notebooks in it it's apparently quite a big volume um, I say apparently even though I've got it in my hand because of course I'm looking at 
this, you know, uncorrected proofs, this big, you know, uh, bound volume. Who knows exactly what it'll be look like, but it's, it's approaching 300 pages, you know. So there's a lot of substantial work in there. Uh, and also it interests me because it's not just, you know, some stuff that people had pulled together after his death. You know, he was actively working on trying to publish this book and had taken it, you know, to a certain degree through the manuscript. So it, it is sort of, I think, a reasonable approximation of what Cohen would have published uh, had he lived to do so. Another thing I'm going to start reading very soon is the screenplay uh, for The Witch um, by Robert Eggers. Now, I haven't seen The Witch yet. I'm holding off seeing it because I'm going to read the screenplay first. Uh, why might I do that? Well, you know, why ruin the movie for myself, in other words, by reading the screenplay? I mean, I know the movie's going to be a little different from the screenplay, but, you know, this is still a version of the script that is uh, dated 2013, so it's probably a relatively recent version. Uh, it's, it's registered WGA, so it's a version, at least, that is uh, that made it in some form to film. Uh, I'm reading The Witch uh, before I watch it as part of an exercise, you know, uh, it's very valuable if you want to write movies, uh, to read scripts before seeing the movies. It kind of sucks <laughs> because scripts are garbage, like as literary documents, like they're terrible things to read. They don't, um, it's not enjoyable to read them in, in any real way. Uh, they pale mightily in comparison to the movies uh, that get made out of them. But that's the point. Uh, in a manner of speaking, right? Like the point of reading screenplays as a screenwriter uh, is to get a good sense of what the thing looks like on paper, bef you know, what, what it all looks like before it makes its way to the screen and what kinds of things is, you know, the writer doing in terms of translating uh, the ideas, the images, you know, what is the sort of blueprint look like before you take it to the screen? So it's instructive to see um, how different people have put together their scripts uh, without having this sort of final version in your head. So it's not much fun to do it this way, but, uh, you know, I, again, I'm trying to be intentional about what I'm reading and select it for specific reasons. I'm writing a script right now that uh, is not as, you know, set as far back in the past as The Witch. Uh, it's not set in the same area at all. Uh, but I am trying to sort of, it is sort of set in you know, around 1906 uh, in a settlement in Canada, very small settlement that is also a religious settlement, different religion. It's a Jewish settlement rather than, you know, the kind of Puritan settlements. Um, and I also am trying to, in my new draft of this film, I'm thinking of pulling in a few more kind of weird elements. So uh, The Witch is the movie that I keep hearing about uh, is apparently quite impressive apparently the ending is really uh, impressive i don't know what the ending is i haven't read the script yet I haven't watched the film uh, but i'm having a hard time finding a new ending for my script i mean i had an ending and i had a whole uh i mean i was done the script but we had to cut uh it basically was two parallel storylines we had to cut one whole storyline out so my script all of a sudden got reduced from like 100 pages to you know 48 pages uh, plus my ending got deleted so um, I'm kind of back to the drawing board in some ways. Uh, I'm looking for sort of touchstones uh, that I could, you know, learn from. Maybe I'm not going to do anything like this witch script, but 
is close enough to the kind of project that I'm engaged in and is close enough to um, what I want to do that either I'm going to get some cool uh, ideas reading this. You know, there'll be kind of neat little things that I can maybe, you know, steal a little bit of or draw a little bit of influence from. Um, I mean, I'll, of course, you know, be transforming everything and making it my own if I find anything, you know, to kind of look at. Uh, but if I don't, if I don't find any kind of good ideas out of it, I'll at least figure out what do I not want to do? Um, you know, where is the sort of problems with this script? Where are the good things? Again, you're kind of learning what you like, what you don't like as you read these things. You're thinking through, you know, your project as you're reading this other thing. That's where research along the lines of, uh, like creative research really helps a lot. Like if you want to write a haunted house story, go get a bunch of haunted house stories, you know, and start reading them. You know, work on something else while you're doing that. Don't just pause your writing process. You know, keep your creative practice up. Um, go read that other stuff out and really start thinking through, like, what do I like here? What am I responding to? What don't I like? What are things that I'm seeing a lot? Uh, what are things that, you know, seem essential? And what are things that maybe could go? Uh, you, you, you need that depth and breadth of knowledge about a genre or about a type of work in order to figure out, you know, where you're going to fit your thing in, right? Again, it's about kind of figuring out where you're going to sit in that uh, chorus, what note you're going to sing, you know, what notes you're going to string together. Um, you want them to be close enough to what other people are doing that it you know works, and you you're part of that you know symphony. Um, but you want some distinction in there too. You know, you want to be uh, standing out, uh, and you can't do that unless you know what you're talking about. I'm also going to be reading um, a number of books uh, that just are by people that I know, right? You know, so I want to read and support people I know and like. But also, you know, I'm doing this podcast now. Uh, I'm going to try to tap some of these people to be guests on my podcast. And so I'm going to read their books. I don't like the idea of interviewing people having not read their books. Uh, I mean, I've been interviewed in both scenarios. I've been interviewed uh, by people who've you know, read my work and know a lot about it and have thought about it. And I've been interviewed by people who have no real clue about who I am, but you know, they kind of thought it sounded neat or their producer told them about it or whatever. I can tell you from experience, uh, the one is vastly superior to the other. There's no replacement uh, for an interviewer who has read your book. You know, no amount of research that their team does and no amount of you know just natural interviewing talent can replace them reading your work and knowing specifically what they're talking about and actually asking you about the work um, rather than kind of staying on the superficial level. So because I'm trying to do this podcast, because I want to uh, do a good job with it, you know, I'm going to get more comfortable with it over time. I'm going to get better at it over time. But I still want to you know do everything I can at the start uh, to kind of be moving forward in a meaningful way. Uh, I think if I want to ask, you know, my friends to be on this podcast, you know, uh, people who are busy, you know, maybe they like me or whatever, but, or maybe they don't, <laughs> you know, I just don't know yet. But the point being is, you know, if I want to ask somebody to be on my podcast, I want to show them the respect of, um, you know, reading their work and ask them smart questions and stuff. Plus, I'm thinking of you, uh, the people listening, what would be the best experience for you? Well, uh, this podcast, in my point of view, is primarily focused on uh, 
uh, you know, is primarily for serious writers. You know, I see you as a serious writer who has vested interest in learning a lot of things um, on a deep level about writing. So how am I supposed to get um, a guest in and talk about anything on any sort of deep or complicated, complex level in the kind of depth and rigor uh, way that you might want if I don't read their work. Uh, plus, like I say, I just try to read people's work that I know. So I'm going to read Sign of the Fox uh, soon by S.M. Biko, Samantha Biko. Um, uh, so Sam's uh, f- uh, first book of her trilogy, her YA trilogy. I read previously her book, uh, The Lake and the Labyrinth, sorry, The Lake and the Library, uh, which is really good. And so I'm looking forward to these. Uh, I'm looking for these books, except for the fact that they're like, I'm just looking, they're like so long, man. Sam, come on. It's going to be like 1,500 pages by the time this thing's done. I'm going to read Strangers by David A. Robertson. Again, another YA trilogy. Everybody knows doing these YA trilogies now. Um, this one is a lot slimmer. It's David Robertson. It's like half as long. So, hey, maybe I'll read that one first, Sam. Um, but, but, you know, they both, I'm, I'm very excited about both these books. David A. Robertson's a really great writer. If you don't know his work, one book I did read recently uh, is his Governor General's, General's Award-winning uh, children's picture book, uh, When We Were Alone. Now, that book is about the experience of the residential school system and uh, the kind of intergenerational trauma that has resulted from that and the sort of separation of these you know, children uh, from their siblings and their families as they went into these schools and how they were able to you know, endure that uh, when they were able to endure that and how it uh, has affected them. Uh, now it's about all that and it's a kid's picture book. It's brilliant, really brilliantly done. Um, you know, one of those rare picture books that, you know, makes you cry, right? Like, I love you forever or something. Um, anyway, brilliant book. Robertson's a really great writer. He also is a guy who works, even if I didn't know Robertson, I don't know him super well, but, you know, I know him enough and I like him. Um, He's a, he seems like a great, he's a great guy, but um, even if I didn't know him, or even if he was a total jerk and <laughs> I hated his guts, I would still be reading this guy because he's so good. He works in all these different genres. You know, he's writing YA fiction here, The Strangers YA fiction, again, the first YA trilogy. Um, he's you know, done graphic novels. Um, he's done this you know, picture book. Uh, you know, he's worked in a lot of fields, and I'm also interested in working kind of cross-medium like that. So, again, even if I hated his guts, I would be reading his stuff. But lucky it is good. Um, uh, like I say, Sam Biko is the same thing. Even if I didn't you know, know her at all, I read her previous book uh, when I liked it a lot. This is um, not her newest book because that's the second. This is the first in the trilogy. I'm going to read this, of course, before I read the second in the trilogy. Uh, Chadwick Ginther, similarly, has a book out called Graveyard Mind. Um, uh, Chadwick uh, and Gregory Kmichik and I uh, do this shared world uh, anthology. So uh, Chadwick and Gregory were doing it, and I just sort of horned in on it. <laughs> but I'm in there now. So uh, Graveyard Mind is his new book. It's a horror novel. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I, I would read this again, even if I didn't uh, happen to know Chadwick, because um, it's a horror novel set in Winnipeg. Well, 
Uh, I'm a horror writer in Winnipeg, or I see myself as a horror writer, even if nobody agrees with me, uh, in Winnipeg. So I got to read that, right? Plus Chizine Publications has published it. Um, Chizine Publications has been doing amazing stuff. So uh, a lot of reasons to read Graveyard Mind by Chadwick Ginther. Like I say, I haven't read it yet, so I can't necessarily uh, say much about it, but these are reasons I'm selecting these books, right? Uh, you know, I want to support the literary community of which I am part. So I want to buy people's books. I would sometimes buy these books when I don't think I'll like them just to support the people. You know, I'm not made of money, but you know, again, books are an incredible value. Even if you don't read them, uh, you know, you're, you're getting uh, into that community, you're tapping into it, you're helping out. There's a part of being a good uh, literary uh, community person is buying these books. Uh, reading them, of course, is also great. Like I say, I'm reading these partly for business reason, because I want to have these people on this podcast, and I want to be able to talk to them at some length about their books. Uh, this business, I guess. I mean, it's a business reason, although I don't make it, this podcast just cost me money, but nevertheless, you know, let's call it business. It's a business write-off. Let's play that. Um, actually, it is technically a business write-off. That's another thing to point out, is if you're being careful about your selected process, you know, you can start writing these things off. So those books, um, I'm going to write them off. Get some tax uh, break on that. Uh, if I wasn't, you know, going to talk to these people on the podcast, then maybe I wouldn't be able to do that, right? Um, additionally, again, even if none of those things were true, uh, you know, Biko uh, and Ginther and Robertson, they're all sort of working in a wheelhouse uh, that I want to kind of be, you know, moving more fully into that wheelhouse. Uh, they're all people who you know, are, are local in my case, you know, living around me, uh, doing the sort of thing that I'm uh, doing or, you know, interested in doing. So uh, if I didn't know them, I would, you know, want to get to know them. Uh, and I would start with reading their books. I'm going to read a comic script by... Uh, Warren Ellis, uh, the comic strip for, for the script for the first episode of Trees. If you haven't read Trees, by the way, uh, I've already read the Trees paperback, uh, trade paperbacks, the first two, which are out. Trees is an amazing uh, comic series. Uh, Darren Wurschler recommended it to me. I was saying something once about how much I hate um, Transformer movie as a concept. Uh, you know, put aside the movie itself. The concept of it to me, once you move out of a comic-y are comic arena or cartoony arena, once you move into like we're at live action, they're kind of realistic, quote unquote. Uh, like they're we're trying to look make it look like a real robot thing. There's big violence, things blowing up, right? Once you move out of Cartoonville and you're into like let's assess like if this was a real scenario, how would you a fantasy film kind of treat it as a you know not a plausible scenario maybe, but you know. There's a level of verisimilitude that they're sort of trying to vaguely move towards, aesthetically at least. Well, why would these robots, aliens, ever interact with human beings in any way? They're waging a war against one another. So to me, my complaint was always about the Transformers movie is like, I would like to see that movie if 
uh, like if I was you know making it, if I ever had the opportunity to make the Transformers movie, um, reboot it, I would make a Transformers movie that you know shared the perspective of the robots and humans were just in the background and you never once had the camera focused on a human being uh, they were just kind of in the background getting crushed as the robots were the protagonist antagonist figures um, when we go wage war do we ask the ants what they think and to get involved no uh, we just churn them into the ground uh, under our boots and tanks you know we are, don't have an interest in them we Anyway, tr Darren Wurstler uh, heard me ranting about this somewhere on Twitter or something and said, hey, you got to read Trees by Warren Ellis. So I checked it out, and the basic concept of trees, I'm going to read the first, like, I want to read a little bit of the first page of the script for you. Um, this is just some of the captions that you would see in the comic. You know, 10 years after they landed, so this alien ships landed, these big giant tree-like things, all over the world, as if no one were here, and they did nothing and did not speak, as if there were no one here and nothing underfoot. Ten years since we learned uh, that there's intelligent life in the universe, but they did not recognize us as intelligent or alive. Brilliant, brilliant concept. And the, you know, trade paperbacks have so far, uh, the comic series so far has been pretty interesting. He kind of stopped writing it, and I'm a little annoyed at him personally. Like get back to writing this thing, but it's brilliant. So anyway, I'm going to read the comic script because one, I love this uh, concept so much. Two, it is a comic I've read already, so I and I ha I own. I can reference it. Uh, and three, I'm trying to learn a bit more about writing comic scripts. Um, so for a project I'm going to be doing, you know, hopefully before too long, I want to be writing some comic scripts. So again, just like reading screenplays. Even though it's a medium that, frankly, there's no reason to read a comic script or a screenplay unless you want to write comic scripts or screenplays. Um, or you're you know, publishing them or something. Literally no reason. Do not do it. If you're just a casual reader, there's nothing interesting about those uh, genres as literature. They're not literary documents, um, but they're brilliant um, blueprints you know, for these eventual literary documents, you know, graphic novel, a comic book, uh, or a film. Uh, Eden Robinson, Trickster Drift. Uh, this is a book, again, that I'm reading. Uh, I started reading already. It's not, it doesn't come out until October also, so again, I'm not allowed to really talk about it. Um, but uh, her first, it's the second book in her trilogy, her YA trilogy. The first book was Son of a Trickster. I did uh, read and review that book. Um, so I'll link in the show notes to my review of Son of a Trickster. Um, and then Trickster Drift is her sequel coming out in October. Uh, I was assigned that book uh, for review, but uh, it's, you know I liked it enough uh, that I requested to review the second book as well. Uh, again, I'm going to link to that uh, book in the show notes, my review of it in the show notes. Uh, if you go to jonathanball.com slash four, uh, you can find links to all these books and when relevant my reviews or thoughts on them um, but again looking at a YA trilogy I don't have any real plans to write a YA trilogy but I do have a YA novel in draft um, a guy a friend of mine Ryan Fitzpatrick the poet Ryan Fitzpatrick and I uh, did the three-day novel challenge together once and we ended up with a YA uh, novel draft 
now i mean we wrote in three days so like i say it's pretty uh, rough and you know not great but it's still a you know, whole novel written in draft uh, we've got some kind of vague plans to rework it and actually do something with it so uh, i'm reading a bunch of ya so again even if i weren't gonna try to interview these people whatever or you know in eden robinson's case i've got to write a review of that for the winnipeg free press so i've got to read it uh, Leonard Cohen, same thing. I'm writing a review of that book. Um, but uh, regardless, I'd be reading that work for this other reason. That's one of the sort of core things I think is important to think through when you're selecting books to read. Are there multiple reasons to read them? You know, If there's just one reason to read a book, that's fine. It's a reason, but it's better if there's two reasons, right? If there's three reasons, it's even better. Um, there's so many books out there uh, you can't read them all, uh, and it really helps to think through a little bit. Instead of just picking up whatever you want to read, um, just because it catches your fancy, you know, not, not an invalid way to approach things, but again, if you're going to kind of look at it a little more seriously as a writer and try to think of a more structured way to do things, um, why not uh, try to hit the nail with you know five hammers, right? That's a stupid metaphor because, of course, that's a horrible idea. But you get my drift, right? You know, why not? You know, try to you know do your sort of um, multi-pronged approach uh, and really dig in uh, to these books. You know, pick a book that you know you're gonna have multiple kind of diverse reasons for reading. Let's look a little bit more at like intention. So I want to talk a bit about how I read. Uh, a little differently than I might otherwise. Um, so there's two basic reasons to read or ways to read uh, that I see as like polar opposites of one another. Uh, so one is reading for information. So this is the kind of reading that you probably are used to doing if you're in a nonfiction text. You pick up a book on something and here's how to write dialogue. Right? That's another book I'm going to read soon, Dialogue by Robert McKee. Um, so you pick up Dialogue by Robert McKee because you want to write dialogue. So you're going to read that book for information, right? You're going to read it to learn how to write dialogue or or whatever. That's how you're going to approach it. Where's the info I can pull out of this book? The other way to read is the way that I think is more normal with, say, a novel, uh, to read immersively. Uh, you want to kind of get lost in the story. You want to be carried along, maybe. What I think you need to learn to do as a writer is sit in the sort of middle position between these poles. Uh, and I advise doing it in a particular way, again, just because I find it works for me, you might you know, find something else works for you. Uh, but I really think a useful way to approach it is this. You start trying to read immersively. So you just kind of look at the book, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, yeah, you look at it as immersive experience. I just want to get in this book and just be reading it and you know to experience it so don't get too wrapped up on your initial ideas as to why you're reading the book and just sort of you know but have like maybe a few things in your head you know if i'm reading uh, sam uh, biko's um uh, sign of the fox with the idea that i'm going to try to interview her and talk to her about you know writing let's say a ya trilogy well if that's in my head uh, in the background but i'm just going to start reading the book you know just to read it to experience the story to have fun with it 
um, you know, to kind of enjoy it, right? But in the back of my mind is that intention. Here's my goal, just sort of in the back of my mind. Then what I want to try to do is f I got, I'll get a bunch of tape flags. I don't like to write in books uh, because I don't like to read this, to think the same thing twice. So my idea is, you know, if I write in the book, well, if I go back and read the book again, I'm going to think that thing again. I want to think something different. And again, I just don't want the books to be marked up in all these ways because then it's just going to take me out of the reading. I won't be able to really purely, uh, you know, kind of experience the book in a fresh way again. You might not care about that, but like that's how I'm doing it. So I've got these tape flags, uh, and I try to just flag anytime I come out of the experience. So anytime I'm no longer immersed in the book, but I just sort of catch myself coming out of the book for whatever reason. Sometimes it's a good reason, you know. I, I, you know, she writes. Maybe Sam, you know, writes some really beautiful piece of description. I kind of linger over it a little bit because I like how well it's written. Well, I'll flag it, and I'll just move on with life and keep going. Uh, might be some sort of negative thing, you know. Maybe um, I'm reading a, you know, my, this McKee dialogue book, and again, it's something he's saying, I just think that's kind of garbage, and <laughs> or you know, that's really clumsy way of wording it you know uh, maybe i just don't like a, a passive description say in a novel or i don't like some dialogue that sounds clunky or whatever um if it's bad enough that i'm kind of noticing you know it's kind of really kind of pulling me out of the experience then i'll flag that too like i put a little tape flag on it and then just keep going um basically I'm, and i'm the same goes in the reverse i'm looking for things that pull me in so if i like notice that it's you know if I intended to sit down and read for 20 minutes, and now it's an hour later, I'll kind of, once I notice that, I know it's like, oh crap, an hour has gone by. I'll just sort of stop and I'll kind of go back and think, okay, what drew me in? Like, where did it kind of, where, where when did I kind of stop paying attention to the time? Uh, and I'll try to like kind of backtrack a bit and figure out, well, where again did it sort of suck me in like that? And I'll flag that. Conversely, Every time I put the book down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do something else now. I'll just flag that. Where would it say that I put the book down? I'll just kind of flag that. And what I'm looking for is places that pull me in and the places that push me out. I want to flag you know, all the places that pull me in and all the places that push me out. Maybe not every single one, but every single kind of one. So if I flag one awkward line of dialogue, um, I won't flag another one unless it's, it's a more awkward line. Like I'll just I'll move the flag in that case to like the most awkward line of dialogue. Or you know if again I flag a really beautiful piece of description and I see another one that kind of stops me, I'll move the flag to the most beautiful piece of description, the one I like the best. So at the end of the book, I've got a bunch of flags in it, and they're all sort of indicating places that pulled me in or places that pulled pushed me out. Uh, I'll, if I'm really organized that day, I'll use two color flags. Um, Stephen King tells a story somewhere about uh, how he, his wife, you know, was kind of an important reader for him and his first reader in a lot of ways. So when he's got a manuscript done, he'll print the whole thing out and he'll put it on the kitchen table, apparently. I don't know if he does this every time, but I remember reading some story of him telling this story. Uh, he prints the manuscript out, puts it on the kitchen table, you know, and his wife is like going to read that copy of the manuscript. And, you know, he'll, you know, wander away. He'll wander back to the table and he'll see maybe that she 
got through like a chunk of the manuscript, but then stopped. So, and, he, and he'll look, he'll look down and go, okay, well, where did she stop? So maybe, you know, she started reading uh, and she got to page 42. Then she, you know, started doing the dishes. Well, King will notice, okay, she stopped on page 42. He'll take page 42 away and he'll rewrite it because he doesn't want, he'll rewrite it so that, you know, maybe next time she won't stop, right? Like that's, what is it that made her stop? What is it that, where the story got lax enough that she felt she could just go to the dishes as opposed to pushing forward and, you know, really trying to, um, you know, finish. That's the sort of thing that, you know, uh, is going to make a guy like Stephen King into this, you know, suspenseful roller coaster, uh, driving prose, you know, master. Whatever else you think of King, and, you know, there's good and bad about Stephen King. Uh, but even at his worst, you know, King barrels you through those books. Maybe the most important parts of a, of a reading process is the reflection period. And I find a lot of people, myself included, don't spend enough time on reflection. You know, you read a book, you kind of move on with your life, pick up another book and start reading another book. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, except that if you're reading, you know, for the kind of absorption that you want uh, to have as a writer, you're reading to inform your work, you're reading, you know, for the influence, but also, uh, you know, to learn how these things are put together. I think you really need to spend some focused time and reflection, you know, going through those books. That's, again, why I, you know, I'm flagging things. Um, when I'm done with the book, you know, and I move on to another one, uh, I take some time to come back and look through those flags. And I get, and I take notes. Now, I've tried a lot of systems for notes taking, and um, I've eventually landed with writing by hand in paper notebooks and the reason i've come back after many years you know and many other systems to writing by hand in paper notebooks is because it is inconvenient and slow so uh, it forces you to pay attention again a lot of the things that i want to do uh, is force myself to pay attention if you're going to really you know, take time to think about these books. I think it helps, you know, to physically be going through physical books. So I try, I do read ebooks, um, but I mostly read paper books still. Um, and part of that is because I want the book to be taking up physical space. I want it to be in my life and to be a thing I can look at and see, you know, sitting on a shelf over there or sitting on my desk, sitting on the bed. I want it to be something I can carry in my hand. You know, one of the, I, I have a ebook you can download, um, very short little, you know, thing. It's called How to Read, You Can Read 95 Books This Year. And it's related to the 95 Books Challenge. You know, I, I co-created the hashtag 95 Books, if you've seen that or know about that. Um, and me and Ryan Fitzpatrick co-created 95 books. And this is a challenge that goes along with that hashtag, you know, 95 books of trying to read 95 books in a one year period. You can start at any time you like, you know, I, most people start at the start of the year, but there's no reason you can't start in the middle of the year or, you know, start tomorrow. Um, 95 books is a lot of books, uh, but I read 95 books every year, uh, if not more books than that. Um, the one year in recent years that I did fail, I read 78 books. So, um, you know, 
quite a substantial amount of books still. One of the one of the keys to reading that much, and if you again, if you go to 95books.com, you can sign up for a newsletter and download. You know, for free, you'll get this little ebook of how to read 95 books every year. Like, here's some tips, really simple uh, methods to increase the amount of reading you're doing. So even if you're not going to, you know, read 95 books, here are some simple ways to kind of be increasing the amount of reading you're doing. Um, and one of the simplest tricks is to have a physical book that you carry in your hand. Carry it in your hand. <laughs> Wherever you are, carry the book in your hand. And you walking down the street, don't have it in your backpack, have it in your hand. Uh, and the reason for that is that when you have the thing as a physical presence in your life, uh, you'll find yourself doing things like diving into it a little bit at a bus stop, diving into it a little bit when you're waiting in line. Um, when it's in your backpack or something, there's some sort of friction between you and the, uh, the experience of reading. Again, anything that keeps you, any step you have to take to open the book and read it is, uh, you know, a step you should try to eliminate. Um, the note-taking for me is a similar thing. Uh, I want to have a physical notebook that I can physically write in because I want these things to be taking up physical space in my life so that they will also take up mental space in my life. And I want to slow down. You know, I'm not a very good hand. I can't write uh, very well by hand. I can barely read my own writing. So I have to really write slowly. I have to really think about when I go through all these flags that I've added to the book, I have to really think about which ones are actually are important, which ones are actually worth noting. You know, I went through the book and I got, you know, I was excited and I, you know, flagged like 20, 40 things. Well, I don't want to write all that stuff in a notebook, right? That's too much stuff. So I'm just going to go through the flags. I'm going to look at them all and think, okay, what is really kind of significant here? Uh, yes, that was a beautiful piece of description, but I've seen more beautiful pieces of description in other books. I'll just take the flag off and not worry about that one. Um, or, you know, what I'm looking for is like, where is there something I haven't seen in another book? You know, where is there like a quote that I think I might return to um, or might even use or incorporate later on? Where is there a technique that I think I might want to try that I haven't already tried? You know, where is there something different, in other words, unique to this book that I haven't really encountered in another book? Or it, maybe I'm just trying to gather a certain type of material. You know, I've got a project on the go um, called The Crow Murders, and I'm just gathering mentions of crows. You know, is this an interesting mention of crows? This is this a neat quote about crows? Sometimes I'm just gathering material that I might use. Sometimes I'm gathering um, information that I, again, might employ in some way. Other times I'm just kind of looking for techniques or I'm just looking for things that bothered me or things that I didn't understand. You know, I wanted to spend some time now thinking a bit more fully about that moment. You know, think a little bit more fully about that moment I got kicked out of this book or uh, that I, you know, found myself really pulled into the book. You know, what can I learn from that moment? What can I learn from having had that experience? Even if I'm not going to learn anything, like maybe I just want to free write about it a little bit, or maybe I just want to note that passage down so I can revisit the passage later and just kind of know what page it's on or something. Um, whatever the notes are, you know, are going to be specific to the kinds of things that you're interested in or that you are working on maybe, you know, or that you're thinking maybe you might work on in the future or whatever. Um, you know, I was just reading uh, a screenplay, and one of the things I uh, noticed was that there was a massive thing that happened on page eight. 
And then on page nine, there was another massive thing. I kind of felt like it was too many things too close together. Like they're both excellent, really outstanding moments. Um, but I mean, literally one after the other. And so I kind of felt like maybe those should be spaced out a little more fully. Um, just in my, th again, my thought about how I might rewrite it. That's actually a lot of what I note down is, you know, if I had written this book, what would I have done differently? Um, something that, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of an ego trip in some ways. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm better than that person. I might have different goals. And that's just the reason I would have done it differently. You know, they're doing it in the way that's right for them. I might have done it differently in a way that would be right for me and my uh, priorities versus which, you know, maybe are just different from their priorities. So, you know, it's not that you necessarily are going to be thinking of yourself as better than this person. Here's how I would fix this book. Although, you know, you may get some of that, you know, sometimes you can just clearly spot what a person should have done differently. And that's a bit more objective, but other times it's just kind of a subjective thing. And what you're looking for again, is just kind of, ex ex you're, you're, you're sometimes looking less for um, making a note about this book that you read and more sort of, you know, making a note about here's how I sit in relation to this book. And here's how I've kind of learned about myself um, and who maybe I want to be as a writer relative to this book. Um, whatever it is, uh, I want to make the notes in hand in pen because I want to go through a sort of physical process uh, that makes me pay attention. And I want to really slow things down and have that kind of absorption uh, of the you know, passages and the sections and kind of, again, kind of filter through it. You know, it's too easy to just copy paste or take photos of everything that is kind of interesting and you follow it away digitally. And theoretically you can, you know, you're taking more notes. Um, and theoretically, you know, you've got an easier way to, you know, gather those notes up. Um, weirdly, you get this paradoxical situation where, you know, your phone is clicking, you're taking photos of the pages you like and your phone is reading the book for you your phone is thinking through it you're not really getting the experience or you just are gathering things throwing them in the endless digital pit there's no um, physicality to it so therefore you know there's no recall there's no uh, like it's theoretically easy to recall things you can just search a word you know search the word crows pull up all the things all your notes about crows um, but realistically maybe you know, those things just lost the ether because it doesn't ever occur to you again. You know, you've just kind of had this gathering, like you want to be, whatever your system is for taking notes, um, you want to one, have one, and two, you want it to work for you, you know, to work in terms of retrieval. Um, so for me, digital systems, I've just found they don't work for me because they're too easy and I need to make the process harder for myself because that way I pay attention. Um, you might just have a different, you know, you might be better with digital systems than physical systems, but I would encourage you to at least try a different system than the one you're currently using uh, and just see what difference it makes. Um, the one big weakness of the physical system, of course, of note-taking is you, you compile these notebooks and what's in them. You don't want to be sitting down and like, you know, it's harder to find things in a notebook than it is on your computer because you got search functions on a computer. So... Um, my solution to that, if you, if, if that's an objection you have, the solution I found that works very well is I have a separate little tiny notebook, which is an index. 
So that's just an index to these other notebooks. So, um, and I sometimes have notebooks for different projects. Other times I just kind of have no, I, I used to do like the project specific notebooks a bit more than I do now. Uh, I found that they weren't uh, as, they kind of were not as useful to me for a variety of reasons. But I still will have, you know, project specific notebooks sometimes if it's a really massive big project, like the Chrome Murders, I've got a specific notebook for that project because it's a kind of ongoing massive project that you'll hear more about in the next few years. Um, but it's effectively an endless project. So I really, you know, I'm going to be gathering an incredible amount of material for that. For other things that maybe I'm going to work on for a couple months, you don't need your own notebook necessarily for that. Um, but I need to be able to find things in these notebooks, you know, so... I've just had a very simple system that I've developed. As I write in the notebook, I just add page numbers to the notebook. I've got a separate book that's an index. And so I just, you know, have each notebook has a name and each, uh, you know, page, it has page numbers. The index, you know, has two sections. I've got an index. Uh, one half of the index is just uh, like a list of books. And then it's got what notebook and what page do I have my notes for that book on? And the other half of the index is a list of subjects, you know. So um, just like a couple pages where it just says crows, then just all the notebooks and numbers where I mentioned crows. And just maybe a little note about what's on that page. So that's my solution uh, to the problem of you know, how do you find things in a big bunch of physical notebooks. Uh, you may have a different solution. I, I know cue cards work really well for some people. I tried the cue card system and I was having a bit of an issue with it because there, it's not easy to carry boxes of cue cards around as opposed to like a notebook you can carry it around. Um, but I know cue cards work very well for people. Again, your digital systems might work well for you too. You know, what I found was, uh, you know, I've got Evernote on my computer. I shove things in Evernote all the time. I have no memory of what's in it. Uh, you know, I don't even think to search for things in it. It's often easier for me to go out and find the information again than to you know even just remember I have it in Evernote and search through it, but that's just me and my kind of you know weakness I guess in terms of how I interact with digital systems. You know I've just found myself gravitating to paper more and more, um, but I also try to you know kind of minimize the amount of paper I'm using. So you know to me like that kind of I've got a bit of a hybrid size system. Again. Whatever system works for you, you just need a system. A system that will allow you to uh, select uh, the things you're reading with some sort of intelligence. Again, ideally, I would say, you know, you wanna be reading something for multiple reasons. You want an intentional uh, process of reading, something that will allow you to be immersed and to experience the sort of joy of something like a novel, while also kind of holding back um, a little bit giving yourself a little bit of an analytical um, eye. Uh, one of the things you're really looking for when you're reading as a writer is technique. Uh, so a thing to kind of notice when you're kind of looking through all your flags or your, all your notes, um, all those sort of moments you get pulled in or pushed out or just all those sort of things that interest you. One of the things to kind of be thinking about, and this is something I try to note in my notebooks, uh, is what are the techniques that are producing the effects? So when I'm getting sucked in or when I'm getting kicked out or when I'm you know, feeling some sort of feeling, what is the technique that has produced that effect? 
Uh, you can come to some really surprising conclusions if you read a lot and you start to see the same source of things happening again and again on a technical level. So I'll just give you a really simple example. Uh, one thing that I started to notice a lot uh, when I was reading um, a lot of poetry that had relatively consistent meters. So a lot of poetry where you had a pretty consistent meter and you had uh, as a result a pretty consistent syllable count to the lines. So I was reading a lot of these poems that had about 10 syllables or so per line. Um, sometimes they'd have a little more, sometimes have a little less. For the most part, you know, these lines were, you know, 10 syllable counts. Um, they would have like some sort of structure that was a consistent line length. Uh, what I noticed in those kinds of poems is if at the end of the poem you had a pattern set up where, say, most lines were 10, 11 uh, syllables, but then the final line had nine syllables, like it lacked a single single syllable. What I noticed is that in those scenarios, my brain and my kind of voice in my head wanted to lengthen the nine syllable line to 10 syllable space. Uh, so the result is a mournful tone. <laughs> it sounds weird, but it's a very small technical thing. And you can try this. This is a good trick for you as a writer. If you have a poem and at the last line you go one less syllable than the previous few lines, uh, you set up a pattern of like consistency and then you, you shift it, but, but only by one syllable. You drop one syllable. Uh, what happens then is there's a sense of incompleteness to that final line. There's a little tiny sense of taking uh, something and dragging it out into a slightly slower space. Uh, and as a result, it seems sad. So I'll give you a, a really simple example. Here's a poem uh, from a forthcoming book. Um, this poem is a found poem. I found this on Kijiji. So this is an actual ad from Kijiji that I've just taken the lines and I've taken the text and just chopped it up a little bit. Now it's a haiku, except it's lacking the last syllable. So it's instead of 575, it's 574. And this is how the haiku goes cleaning up the house and would like to give away our ring next dove now there's two things that make that last line sound sad uh, especially as I mean I'm not a great reader of my own poetry but if you were to look at that on a piece of paper it's you know especially comes across very sad one the subject is a little sad the idea that they're going to give away this animal and they're cleaning up the house the animal is somehow cluttering the house now so it's kind of a funny idea but it's ending with a sad tone. Uh, there's two things that make the sad tone work. One is the lack of that syllable, our ring-necked dove. Um, the fact that I've got four syllables instead of the expected five there, you know, it's a very subtle thing, but it does make the tone a little more mournful. But the second thing that works in conjunction with that is the word dove has a long O sound, and long O sounds are very mournful as well. This is something that Edgar Allan Poe discusses in his essay, The Philosophy of Composition, uh, which is all about how Poe wrote The Raven. It's an excellent essay you should go check out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes because it's on my website already, as is The Raven, which you should also check out. Um, so again, go to the show notes, uh, jonathanpaul.com slash four. I've links to all the things that I've sort of mentioned, all the books I've mentioned in this uh, episode. 
I'll have a link to the philosophy of composition by Edgar Allan Poe. In that, he has spends a long time talking about long O sounds and how they're mournful in tone, uh, and so on and so forth. And, he, and in the Raven, which I'll also link to, uh, he uses all these long O sounds. So, our ring neck dove is doing sort of two little tricks. Uh, this long O uh, sound at the end, plus the lack of this expected syllable. Both those things are combining to produce a certain sad tonal effect. That's the kind of thing you'll eventually be able to start picking up uh, as you're reading things. But in this case, the philosophy of composition, he just talks about the sound thing. But you know, you, you can test that idea of poems by doing things like reading a bunch of poems that use the sound in particular ways and at particular places. Uh, and the other thing, of course, again, you'll just sort of pick up your own observations about what works and doesn't work, what seems you know, to produce this effect in you or that effect in you. Um, uh, I'll maybe just end with a really brief um, re-mention of the, the 95 Books Challenge. Um, again, if you go to 95books.com, uh, right at that link, uh, 95books.com, you will have a, a place where you can click uh, subscribe to my newsletter and again get a little tiny ebook. It's about 12 pages long. It just kind of gives you a breakdown of uh, ways that you can read more. Uh, it, you'll, ideally, so that you could create, or, um, complete the 95 books challenge. But even if you don't want to do that, uh, you know, here's just ways you can read more books uh, and do it in a kind of you know, you're, where you're not speed reading and just blasting through things, but you're still being attentive, you're still getting a lot out of uh, the experience, um, and so on. Um, and the other thing you can do at that link, 95books.com, is it just has all my book reviews that are online are there. So if you want, you know, just kind of browse some book reviews, you can do that, you know, find some things to read. Uh, that's 95books.com, and then the show notes for this are jonathanball.com slash four. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, keep writing the wrong way. Yeah.